Well, let's turn in our Bible for our scripture reading to Proverbs chapter 22. Proverbs chapter 22, we'll be looking at verses 17 through 29, the end of the chapter. Book of Proverbs chapter 22, verses 17 through 29. Verse 17. Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Let them all be fixed upon your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have instructed you today, even you. Have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge that you may know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you? Do not rob the poor because he's poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. Do not be one of those who shakes hands in a pledge, one of those who is surety for debt. If you have nothing with which to pay, why should he take away your bed from under you? Do not remove the ancient landmark which your fathers have set. Do you see a man who excels in his work? He will stand before kings. He will, he will not stand before unknown men. Proverbs chapter 22, verses 17 through 29. Uh, now, if you would, take your copy of the scriptures and turn to 1st Timothy chapter 6. 1st Timothy chapter 6. As you can tell, as you find this in your copy of the Bible, we're coming rapidly to the end of this letter that Paul has written to Timothy, his protege, someone he is preparing to uh, carry on his ministry in uh, Asia and Europe. And as we come to the end of this chapter, one of the things that we see that Paul is expressing to Timothy is the difficulty of life, and even more so the difficulty of the Christian life. And think about it, in, in many places, you can meet the standard by just doing the right thing. You can be compliant by just doing what is right. But for the Christian, the standard is not just to do what is right. For the Christian, the standard is to think what is right and to have a right attitude. And so Paul has been emphasizing this throughout this short letter that he's written to Timothy. And, and some of the hard things that Timothy has to do uh, is 
enumerated here in this letter. Let me just refresh your memory about some of the hard things that Paul is telling Timothy to do. He is calling the church to pray for everyone, especially for rulers and especially for their salvation. That's not necessarily an easy thing to do. If we really do it, we do it thinking right and with the right attitude, that's not an easy thing to do. I mean, you think now some of the people we would call our rulers, we might not think a whole lot of, we might not think a whole lot of their policies. Nevertheless, we're called to pray for them, especially them, and to especially pray for their salvation. Uh, something else that's going to be really difficult for Timothy to do is he has to tell women that they are to learn, but not to teach or have authority over men. I think that might be harder nowadays than it was in Timothy's day. Difficult thing, though. Timothy also had to teach the church there that they ensure that only qualified men occupy the offices of elder and deacon in the church. Only qualified people, not just because they're willing, not just because they want to, but they have to be qualified. Another difficult thing that Timothy has to tell the church there in Ephesus is that they are not to look down upon him because of his age, because of his young age. But in fact, Timothy has to be an example to them, even though they probably should be an example to him. And finally, one last very difficult thing that Timothy has to teach to the church of Ephesus is he has to instruct the slaves, those who are owned, owned and obligated to other people. He has to instruct them that they have to serve rightly and to serve with a good attitude. Very difficult things. So Timothy wasn't just to do these things, teach these things, but he had to do them with the right attitude, which is probably the hardest thing of all to do. You remember, maybe, what it says in chapter 1, verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. The attitude with which you do things matters. My point here is that none of the things that Paul has been instructing Timothy about are easy or comfortable. And on the top of all of that, Paul mentions in verses 11 and 12 of this chapter four things that Timothy is to do in living the Christian life. You remember the four F's? Flee, follow, fight, fasten. That as a Christian living a faithful Christian life, Timothy will have to flee from sin. He'll have to follow after the good things that are mentioned there. He'll have to fight for sound doctrine. And finally, the one thing that he doesn't have to always do but has been done is fasten his focus on the certainty of eternal life. So the difficult instructions in verses 11 and 12 are now going to be followed by a command that is built, that has a built-in expectation. It has a built-in motivation. You know, because of the difficulty of the Christian life, it's essential that we have, have the right expect, uh, uh, perspective. 
that we have the right expectations. Uh, when you think about perspective, one of the, the great illustrations that we have in our culture is driving a car. When you stop to think about it, driving a car is harder than it sounds. When you drive a car, you're asked to do multiple things at the same time. You gotta keep the car pointed in the right direction. You gotta keep it moving at the right speed. You have to watch out for obstacles and you have to watch out for other cars. And you have to do all that and obey all the traffic laws. If your perspective in driving a car is right in front of the car, that's where your focus is, the likelihood of crashing increases dramatically. This is why in driver's education, they tell you to look down the road, look out in front of you, Look way out there in front of you so you can see what is coming. Now, so there's several reasons why you should look in front of you. Be number one, if something happens right in front of your car, there's almost no way that you can do anything about it. I don't know if anybody here has ever hit a deer or another animal that has just run out in front of your car, you know, like squirrels. You know, squirrels in the road, they can't make up their mind which way to go. You know, they'll be in the middle of the road, and they see the car coming, and they're just going back and forth there in the middle of the road. And, you know, they duck, dash one way, and you keep driving, because you're not, don't ever swerve to save a squirrel. Okay, don't ever swerve to save a squirrel. But then that squirrel comes right back in front. You don't have any time to react. You can't slam on your brakes. You can't do anything. Uh, so if something happens right in front of you, there's really not much you can do about it at all. Secondly, by looking down the road, you can anticipate what is coming. You can make the appropriate adjustments to your driving. So if you're driving down the road and you look out, and 100 yards down the road you see deer standing by the side of the road, you should slow down. You should pay attention to those deer in anticipation that who knows what they're going to do. If you see down the road there's somebody who's crowding the yellow line, maybe coming over the yellow lines, you know you got to pay attention to that. You can't focus on what is right in front of you when you drive. The Christian life is the same in this respect. If you're constantly focused on what is right in front of you, what is happening right now, you're going to be overwhelmed with what to do. You're just focused on dealing with the now. And in fact, you will always be behind. You will be reacting instead of preparing. You will never be dealing with the present situation. You will always be behind. So it's absolutely essential that the believer not get tunnel vision by focusing on what is right in front of them but rather to anticipate and expect what the Bible says is coming. Now, we can't ignore. We can't ignore the things that we face in the present time. But we can't let those things control us. We have to have the proper future perspective. So as we look at this passage here, I want to ask five questions. 
five questions to, under, uh, to help us understand what's in these verses and where Paul is leading Timothy. So let me start with question number one. You should have them there in your uh, sermon notes, your guide to this message. So question number one, what is the charge? What is the charge? So let me read these verses to us, and we'll see a little bit about what Paul is saying. I'm just going to read down verses 13 through 16, the whole passage we're dealing with this morning. Verse 13, I urge you, or that's the word charge, I urge you in the sight of God, who gives life to all things before Jesus, and before Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep this commandment without fear, uh, without spot, blameless until the Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immorality, dwelling in inapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So the charge, we see that right away in verse 13. So what is the charge? And here's the charge. Keep the commandment. Keep the commandment. If you look at the beginning of verse 13 and then attach that to the beginning of verse 14, you see this. I urge you that you keep this or the commandment. Now, what does it mean to urge or charge someone? So the the word urge here in the New King James is just the word charge or command. And it's not just the idea of giving someone an order. So if you were ever in the military, you know that you would receive orders all the time, somebody telling you to do something. Well, that's a part of this word, but also here is the idea of passing along an order which is also true of the military. Oftentimes, when you're given an order, the person who gives you that order isn't the person who came up with that order. They're simply passing it along to you. And what I want you to see here is as Paul uses this word urge or charge or command, he is not requiring Timothy to do something that originates with Paul himself. In a sense, he is simply repeating and emphasizing a previously expressed instruction. Very often in the New Testament, this is what we see. There's very few new commands in the New Testament. The reality is that many of the commands in the New Testament are old commands being applied to a new context. Think about the command to maintain doctrinal purity. This goes all the way back to the Pentateuch, goes all the way back to the law. So why don't we do a little Bible study exercise here. Let's turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. It is here in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4 that we find what the Jews call the Shema, 
the Shema, which means to hear or to listen, to, to pay close attention to. Now, Deuteronomy chapter 6, look at verse 4. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the doctrinal statement. That's the doctrinal statement. This is the doctrine that's going to have to be maintained. Now I want us to look at verses 3 through 9 and see the instructions that go along with this doctrinal statement. Verse 3. Therefore, hear. It's an instruction. Listen, O Israel, and be careful to observe it, to do it that it may be well with you and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord God of our fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 4, again, this is this doctrinal statement. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And then he goes on to explain a little bit more about what that is. Verse 5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them when you sit down in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on your the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And so these are all instructions that go along with this doctrine. And these instructions are about paying attention to and maintaining the doctrinal purity of the statement, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So when Paul writes to Timothy, he says, I urge you, I charge you to keep that the commandment He's not introducing a new concept here. Uh, the details of the charge might claim, but the idea of maintaining obedience to the instruction of God's word is the same. It's been the same since God first gave the Pentateuch. So what does it mean to urge or charge? It means for Paul to give Timothy instructions. And he is to give him the instruction to keep the commandment. Now, what does it mean to keep? What's it mean to keep the commandment? Well, the word keep here means to guard, protect, maintain custody of, or to observe. And I think it's the last idea... To observe is the emphasis that we see here in this word, this phrase, to keep. Timothy is to keep the commandment by preserving it through practice. Have you ever done anything that required muscle memory? You know, if you've ever played basketball, you, you take your foul shots, that requires muscle memory. This is why basketball players will shoot hundreds of foul shots. And if you've ever watched a basketball player on TV who was really good at foul shots, 
He does everything the same. He walks up to the foul line. He stands in the exact same spot. He puts his feet exactly where they need to go. He takes the ball. He holds the ball in the exact same way. He'll bounce the ball the exact same amount of times. He does everything the same, and he does it the same because he's practiced it over and over and over. We call that muscle memory. If you play the piano, it's the same way, right? I mean, piano board, 88 keys, right? That's a question. <laughs> Something like that. It's a lot of stuff happening there. And it's long, it's wide. And, it's got, and they all look the same. They're only two different colors. There's no markings on them to tell you what's what. And you practice to play a song, and as you practice, you might have to look down, but as you practice over and over and you play more and more, what happens? You just know where this note is, where that note is. You know how to play this chord or that chord, you know. And my point here is when it comes to keeping the commandment, when it comes to preserving through practice, it's just like muscle memory. You do it over and over again to the point where you don't have to think about, I hold the ball this way, or I have to look over here to hit this key. Your brain just thinks, do it, and you do it. And you do it right because you've practiced. You've preserved it by practice. And so the command to keep the, the command, the charge to keep the commandment, to guard it and preserve it, involves observing it, obeying it, doing it. So Paul has charged Timothy with keeping the commandment. The commandment. Wouldn't it be nice to know what that commandment is? If someone charged you with, you need to do this, wouldn't it be good to know what this is? Our kids are the kings and queens of pronouns. You know, this thing over there that that person did when they were here, and you're thinking, what in the world are you talking about? Because they just use all these pronouns instead of the proper words. And, and that's sort of what's happening here. Now, command, the commandment's not a pronoun, but it's not specified here. So what is the commandment? I mean, the, the brevity and the generality of this word can make it difficult to come to a really strong conclusion. The first thing we observe, now, so we're back in 1 Timothy now. The first thing we observe when we look at this, when Paul writes to Timothy and says, I urge you to keep the commandment, the first thing we would notice is that this word commandment is only used one time by Paul. One time. Or in this letter, excuse me. It's only used one time in this letter. It's used 13 times by Paul in all of his writings, but only one time in this letter. 
That means we don't have another use of the word commandment to go to in this letter to figure out what's Paul talking about. So it's, it's in a vacuum a little bit. Secondly, what also makes it difficult to come to a conclusion about what the commandment is, is that there's no less than eight different suggestions as to what this means. So if you look in the commentary, you look at what some biblical students say, there's no less than eight different ideas as to what the commandment means. So I'm not going to run through all eight of those here this morning. So let me give you the conclusion. I'm just trying to set the stage that this is not an easy thing to figure out. There's some difficulty here. But it seems to me that the commandment that Paul is speaking of is the faithful Christian life as described in verses 11 and 12. The commandment refers back to those four commands. So he gives four commands, as we know, in verses 11 and 12. And he just lumps those four commands under this term, the commandment. That seems to be what Paul is referring to here. And so Paul's instruction to Timothy is that he keeps the commandment as given in verses 11 and 12, the immediately preceding context. And so Paul has charged Timothy, keep the commandment of living the faithful Christian life. Now let me give you another question we have to ask in understanding this passage. Who are the witnesses? Who are the witnesses to this charge? We've seen the charge. Now who are the witnesses to this charge? Look at the second part of verse 13. Paul begins, I urge you, and then here's part two, in the sight of God or before God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate. So here's the two witnesses, God the Father and God the Son. If you just hold your finger here and you turn back to chapter 5, verse 21, you see that Paul has already used this very same uh, construction formula before when he says in chapter 5, verse 21, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's calling them as witnesses, and that's what he does here. He says, my witnesses are God the Father... And the Lord Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus here. So notice what he says about the first witness, God the Father. He says, who gives life to all things. So God the Father is the one who gives life to everything. Not just man, but every living thing. Their life comes from God. Uh, now the word gives here, you see it there, who gives that's in what we call the present tense. And it indicates that God is not only the initiator of all life, but is the one who sustains all life. He is continually giving life, and that all life must be attributed to him. It's probably good for us to be reminded of this truth in our day and time when there is a case before the Supreme Court about the Roe versus Wade decision. 
And so we know that this case, however it is decided upon, will have a big impact on what people think about abortion. But the thing we have to understand is it doesn't matter what those judges decide. Okay, those are just judges in the United States of America. They don't make things happen. They do not give truth. So it really doesn't matter what they decide because the fact is that God is the giver of life. And he alone is the one who determines when life begins. And so while we should certainly pray for our nation in this decision and that our nation would honor the sanctity of life, it really it really doesn't matter what those judges decide. They cannot change the fact that God is the giver of life. And so the first witness that Paul calls to emphasize the certainty of the truth of this command is God the Father, the one who gives life, uh, the one who is not detached from his creation but is intimately involved in his creation in sustaining the life of all things, especially that of the believer. Uh, the second witness that Paul calls is Christ Jesus, God the Son. Now I'll give you a couple references in there. And those references are connected to the description of Jesus Christ here. He, he is described as who witnessed or who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate. And so, in a sense, what Paul is doing here is he is connecting verse 13 about Christ Jesus back to verse 12, which is about Timothy. If you look back to verse 12 real quick, and it says, Fight the good fight, lay hold on eternal life, to which you were also called, and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many. Now drop down to the end of verse 13. In the description of Jesus Christ, it says, who witnessed the good confession. You see that? It's the same terms, same idea, good confession. Timothy had a good confession before many. Jesus Christ had a good confession before Pilate. And so one of the questions that comes up as you look at this, as you look at this description of Jesus is, what is the confession that he made? What's the good confession that Christ made before Pilate? Well, we would have to look at the Gospels to figure that out. And that's what those passages there that I give you refer to is the Gospel account of the confession that Jesus Christ made. Now, we don't have the time this morning to study all these accounts, but that doesn't matter because God, through the inspiration of Scripture, gives to us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke almost the exact same account. And uh, we're not going to look at those. I'm just going to summarize uh, that for you. I'm going to summarize those. You can go back and look those passages up, but I'm going to summarize what they say. So in the account of Christ's confession in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, what we see here is that Pilate asked Jesus a question, and here's the question he asked him. Are you the king of the Jews? 
Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers Pilate and says two words. You say. You say. Now that's kind of cryptic, isn't it? So we want him to say, I am. But that's not what he says. He says, you say. And so on the one hand, when Jesus says this, he's meaning something like, you speak the truth. There's truth in your question, Pilate. You, you answer your question with your question. On the other hand, it's as if Jesus is saying, well, you decide, you look at the evidence, and you decide, am I the king of the Jews? In either case, what uh, Jesus is doing is he's not denying the claim that is inside that question, that Jesus is the king of the Jews. But the way he answers that question means that he's not challenging Pilate for power or the Roman emperor for power. He's not doing that. And so when we look at how Jesus answers this question, the only conclusion is, yes, I am the king of the Jews. That doesn't mean anything to Pilate. It doesn't mean anything to him. John chapter 18 gives us a fuller account of that. And it gives more of a back and forth between Jesus and Pilate. Um, but he's saying that the answer is the same, that Jesus is a king. In fact, he is the coming king. So in connection to Timothy here, we should see that just as Jesus was faithful to his confession before Pilate, I, I am the king of the Jews, Timothy should also be faithful to his confession before many. And so what's the effect? What's the effect of these witnesses? Why does Paul call these witnesses, these two witnesses, for this charge to Timothy to keep the commandment to live a faithful Christian life? Well, first, I want you to understand that when Paul calls these two witnesses, he is in fact saying, I am not the one who came up with these, this idea, with this charge to you, Timothy. My charge to you is in line with the will of God the Father and the will of God the Son. So this means to Timothy that obedience and observing this command isn't just being obedient to Paul as a person who's his leader, his mentor. It's also obedience to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the effect that this command would have on Timothy is it shows him his connection to Jesus Christ in making a good confession. And it's as if Paul is saying to Timothy, uh, you confessed Jesus Christ, now you should live for him. You confessed that he was your savior, that you were his disciple, now you should live for him. I think one of the more transformative things for the Christian life is when we realize that we are ultimately responsible to God for how we live. Oftentimes in the Christian life, our motivation for living is, well, what will they think? of me if I do this or, or do that. You know, I'm not going to do that because, man, if somebody sees me doing that, I'll get in trouble. They'll catch me in doing something. Or uh, we're motivated by our church. Our, you know, this is what our church says. We have to do what our church says. 
But I think one of the things that will revolutionize the Christian life is understanding that your ultimate responsibility is to God. It matters what God thinks about what you do. It matters to what you do affects God. It affects God. You can grieve God by your actions or you can please God by your actions. And so when we come to the point in our Christian life where we say it matters what God thinks about what I do, about what I think, about what I say, it can change our lives. And so Paul is giving Timothy a command here to keep, a command that he says is that, fr- that is essentially from God the Father and God the Son. They are in agreement with this command, the command to keep the commandment of living a faithful Christian life. Now, how is this commandment to be kept? This is the third question. How is this commandment to be kept? Two words, two words on the manner in which this commandment is to be kept. Without spot and blameless. Without spot and blameless. Look at verse 14 again. That you keep this commandment without spot, blameless. Without spot, blameless. So this phrase here, without spot, means to be unstained or to be unmixed with error, something like that, Uh, to be unpolluted even in a sense. It's used in the Christian life or for the Christian life by James and Peter. James says in his letter in chapter 1, verse 27, he says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep oneself unspotted, without spot from the world, unstained, un, unpolluted from the world. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, it says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found in him without spot and blameless. This is the same word that is used of Christ's perfect sacrifice as of the lamb without blemish and without spot. Pure, undefiled, no mixture of error. It is the proper and appropriate sacrifice. So that's without spot. There's no mixture of error. It's the purity idea here. And then blameless. Blameless simply means that a person can't be charged with doing something wrong, nor can they be charged with not doing something they ought to do. It's a unique word to the Apostle Paul here. So the manner in which this charge is to be kept is in all purity. Timothy has to be careful to observe it without mixing in error and compromise. He is to do it in a way that people can't charge him with not doing it. So when it comes to living the Christian life, it has to be lived conscientiously to maintain purity, to do what you're supposed to do and avoid doing what you're not supposed to do. This is how the charge is to be kept. You're to ensure that you keep it correctly. Paul's encouraging him, keep it correctly. 
The fourth question I want to ask as we move through this passage is how long? How long do you have to keep this charge? How long is Timothy supposed to carry out this charge? For a day? For a week? For a month? How long? Look at verse 14. Look at verse 14. It says that you keep this command without spot, blameless. Now pay attention. Until, there's our time word, until our Lord Jesus Christ appearing which he will manifest in his own time. That's how long. Until the Lord appears. Until the appearing of the Lord. This is talking about the rapture. This is talking about the rapture of the church. That Timothy must keep this commandment of living the faithful Christian life until the Lord appears to rapture the church. Now let's look at a couple passages here, a few passages that talk about the rapture of the church. Turn with me to John chapter 14, verse 13. Uh, excuse me, John chapter 14, verse 1 through 3. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Just want to share with you three key passages that speak of the rapture, that speak of the appearing of Jesus Christ. These are not the only passages, but these are three of the key passages. John chapter 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. So he's talking to them in a way that will encourage them. He's trying to give them encouragement because he's telling them, I'm getting ready to leave. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Now notice what it says. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. So what Jesus is saying there is that if I go and I'm going, I'm going to come again and, and you will come join me. Not me come join you. You will come join me. That's rapture. That's the rapture, not the second coming. That where I am, there you may be also. So this is talking about the church being raptured, being taken up. To Jesus Christ. So that's one key passage. Now let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52. Of course, this is known as the resurrection chapter, but there's a lot more happening in this chapter than just the resurrection. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Verses 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. Now, a mystery is not a secret. So he, Paul is not saying, I'm giving you a secret that only you can know about. A secret is something that was concealed in the past, but now is revealed. But now is revealed. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
we shall not all sleep. Sleep is a euphemism for death. By the way, it's only a euphemism for death for believers. That's how the Bible, when an unbeliever dies in the Bible, they're dead. When a believer dies in the Bible, they sleep. They sleep because the idea is one day there's an awakening of your, of your physical body. It's not talking about soul sleep. Your soul never sleeps. It's your physical body that is, awake, is awaiting an awakening in the resurrection. So it says here, behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. Well, why do we have to be changed? In the moment of an eye, in the, twinkling, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trump will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You have to be changed in order to receive your inheritance. You are heir of eternal life. In order to receive that full inheritance that has been promised, you have to be changed. And this takes place at the rapture. The dead are raised. See that in verse 52? The dead will be raised incorruptible. So that's one classification of believer. Those who have died in Christ. The other classification of believer here is the ones who are living. It says at the end of verse 52, and we, that's the living believers, we shall be changed. And this is all connected to the rapture of the church. Now turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Verses 15 and 17, or through 17. That's what we'll focus on here. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 15 through 17. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. So just real quick, notice that this is not a new doctrine from Paul. This is by or through pertaining to the word of the Lord, what the Lord Jesus has already taught. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain or remaining until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Well, precede them where? Talking about going to be with the Lord. Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ, believers, will rise first. It's talking about their resurrection. Verse 17. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up. There's our word rapture. Shall be caught up together with them. That's with the resurrected believers in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So the Lord never comes to the earth in the rapture. He's in the air, and we are received to him in the air, and thus we shall always be with 
the Lord. This is talking about the rapture and not the second coming. In the rapture, the Lord comes down in the clouds, in the air, and the believers are taken up. Those who have died in Christ are resurrected, and those who remain are caught up. They're snatched up. They're raptured up to the Lord. And so Paul, now back to 1 Timothy... So Paul, when he's talking to Timothy about this charge to keep the commandment of living the Christian life, he says, you are to live it until you're raptured. Now, there's an expectation there. And Paul's expectation for Timothy is that this could take place at any moment, at any moment. Timothy could be raptured at any moment. Imminence is what we call this. The imminence of the rapture. And Paul goes on to say in this verse, actually in verse 15, the beginning of verse 15, which he will manifest in his own time, or we might also say in its own time. In other words, I don't have a specific time. I can't tell you, Timothy, that you have to live the faithful Christian life for 25 years or 50 years, 30 years, whatever it might be. But I can tell you the next thing that's going to happen, the next thing that will happen in God's prophetic plan for your life is the rapture. When the Lord appears. And that could happen tomorrow, next day, next week, next year. We don't know, but it will happen at the right time, in its own time. That's when it will happen. So Paul is not telling Timothy exactly how long he must live the faithful Christian life. He is telling Timothy, you need to live the faithful Christian life with the perspective of the appearing of the Lord. So often, our perspective as Christians, the appearing of the Lord has nothing to do with it. We have the perspective of what is here and now, and we can't even get out of our temporal life. We don't look forward to the time when the Lord will appear. We don't think the Lord can appear today. There's nothing preventing the Lord Jesus Christ from returning today. And so part of what Paul is expressing to Timothy can be summed up in the question, how will you be found when the Lord appears? How will you be found? Will you be a faithful Christian? Or instead of fleeing from sin, like Paul has talked about in verses 11 and 12, instead of fleeing from sin, will you be found indulging in sin? Will you be following after the things that are mentioned here in verse 11? Righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Will you be found following those things when the Lord appears? Or will you be found ignoring them? Will you be fighting the good fight of faith, standing for sound doctrine? Or will you have compromised in the area of doctrine? Will you be holding on to eternal life? Or will you be found with a wrong perspective on the future? The Lord is going to appear. 
He can appear at any time. Will you be living the faithful Christian life when the Lord appears? So Paul, when he's giving this, how long, how long do you have to keep this command? He's telling Timothy, don't lose sight. Don't lose sight of what is coming. The Lord Jesus Christ, and he will appear and he will uh, rapture you to himself. Well, let me conclude here quickly, covering the end of verse 15 and 16, because this comes down to uh, who is ultimately, who is ultimately the one that has to be the focus of Timothy? Who's the one ultimately that has to be the focus of the Christian life? The short answer is God the Father. Look at what it says here. So you look at verse 15, it says, which he will manifest in his own time. Right there in our text is a major, major break. Most of our Bibles don't recognize it, but there's a major break because Paul is going to go from talking about the Lord Jesus Christ to talking about God the Father. Notice what it says. He who is blessed, the only potentate, we don't use that term, the idea is ruler, the only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in an inapproachable, unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. So how do we know this is talking about God the Father and not God the Son? Because in verse 16 it says, who dwells in unapproachable light, and it says, whom no man has seen. Has anybody seen Jesus Christ? Yes. Yes. Lots and lots and lots of people. Nobody today, somebody today tells you they saw Jesus Christ. Question mark. <laughs> what are they talking about? But Jesus was the man on the earth. This is a cardinal doctrine of Christianity. That Christ came in the flesh and people saw him. People touched him. He was real on earth. So this can't be talking about Jesus Christ because he has been seen. So that means this is talking about God the Father. And what Paul is doing here is he's pointing out to Timothy that the ultimate focus of all of this, the ultimate focus of living the Christian life has to be on God the Father. He has to be the one in focus. This is important for us to understand because it helps us to think about how we ought to live in relation to God. Think of it this way. John's gospel is most clear about this. So as you read John's gospel, you can't avoid this. The Holy Spirit points to Jesus Christ. That's his role. That's his ministry. He's pointing people to Christ. Christ points people to the Father. As you read John's gospel, it's very clear. Christ's ministry on earth is to make a way for people to come to God the Father. That ultimately says focus is on God the Father. This is who Christ is pushing us to. We go to the Father through Jesus Christ. We have access to the Father because of Jesus Christ. We can pray to the Father because of Jesus Christ. 
So a key motivation for living the Christian life is expressed in this ultimate focus being on the God uh, of God the Father. It matters how you live to God. Another thing that we see here in conclusion is that the Christian life involves expectancy. We're expecting Christ to return. We're expecting to be raptured. We're expecting his appearing. Are you expecting that today? Are you ex we need to be reminded to expect that to happen. And so Paul is telling Timothy as he's coming to the end of this letter, Timothy, I'm charging you in the sight of God and Lord Jesus Christ that you are to keep the commandment of living the faithful Christian life, that you're going to live until Christ returns and raptures the church. And this is ultimately, this is ultimately about who God is, what his plan is, and what he has done. The Christian life is not easy. It's not easy. And we need to make sure that our expectation, our anticipation, our perspective is on the right thing. We always need to have a God-focused perspective. Why don't you stand with me as we close in a word of prayer. Father, we give you thanks for your goodness to us. Thank you for this time that uh, we have had to look at your word. I pray that it will yield fruit in the lives of us who have heard it and studied it. And Lord, uh, we take to heart this charge that you have given Timothy to live a faithful Christian life and that our perspective, our forward-looking should be to the time when Christ appears and that we will be with him and that this is the plan that God the Father has made and is working out. So Father, help us to be faithful. Help us to study your word, to know how we should think, feel, and act. Help us to be faithful, to observe it, and to obey it. Now, Father, we're thankful for the fellowship time that we're going to have here in just a minute and for the Sunday school classes that will follow. Be with those. Bless those. It is our desire that you be elevated above everything. And we come to you in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.